This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcast. Now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Fresca, and welcome back to our podcast. Tommy, what do we got today? Well, today we're going to be looking at some of the major labor strikes in the United States, particularly. So we're looking at economic strikes, right? So there's a bunch of different other strikes, like there's sit-down strikes, hunger strikes, and stuff like that. We're looking at economic strikes. So these are basically labor, labor, dis- labor disputes, where labor force says, you know, we're not being treated fairly, we want better hours, better wage, whatever that may be, better conditions. So we are withholding our labor. You know, we're not going to work until we get what we want. And a lot of these give birth to a lot of unions in a lot of uh, different aspects of the economy, right? Like coal miners and steel workers and stuff yeah. like that. But you also have strikes too later on, like the, the baseball strike, right? A lot of other leagues have went on strike uh, since then. And we'll talk about the current, one of the big new strikes going on right now with the uh, writers, guild, and the actors refusing to work. PS workers just uh, struck a deal, I believe, just a couple of days ago to yeah. avoid a strike which would have crippled, imagine like not being able to get packages, you know? Nuts, right? Labor unions are really kind of in the middle of this whole idea of this podcast, really, when we talk about major labor strikes. Yes. There's this relationship between labor unions and employers. This relationship is often characterized by negotiations, conflicts, cooperation. I mean, it's kind of basically what we're looking at, right? Someone yeah. wants something, then there's negotiations and there's cooperation, or it doesn't really pan out that way. And that's when we go into... Um, strikes. Now, labor unions represent the collective interests of workers in any particular workforce or industry. So while employers represent the management and the ownership, the dynamic between the labor unions and employers varies, obviously. It depends on factors such as industry, union strength, which is still very important. Labor laws really play a large role in that. And we'll notice a lot in these major strikes is where does government fall in all this? How does government help out? Yeah, it's going to get involved. So, and also important to point out, what we'll get to some, is that it's nothing new. Like strikes are like, I guess it's a newer word. But if you look back, there's, um, there's evidence of a strike in the New Kingdom of Egypt in 1170 BCE, you know, like the yep. tomb workers went on strike. You know, there's there's cobblestone worker strikes in England, 1538. So it's we're talking about more like 1800s, 1900s, to, you know, organized labor. more yeah. organizing where there are labor laws and stuff like that. But actually, you know, a working class saying, "No, we're not doing this anymore." You know, with these conditions, there's nothing new. It's happened before in human history. But these organized labor strikes are really what we're looking at. It's not just isolated. This is all of them in the entire country. Yep. I kind of want to start with one, though, that it kind of falls right before all this. And that's because it's the first recorded labor strike in the United States history. And it is believed to have happened in 1768. And it happened when the New York journeyman tailors went on strike for higher wages. And this strike is known as the New York Taylor strike of 1768, guys. So like we're talking 1700s, like American Revolutionary War time. It was a significant event in American labor history because it represents the first like early instance where workers collectively uh, stood up for better working conditions and wages. We don't really know much about it, but for what we do know is that during colonial period, laborers and artisans faced terrible you know, working conditions, often long hours, low pay, kind of the standard what you have throughout these. The journeyman tailors in New York City were no exception, obviously, and they decided to take collective action to address their grievances, so they organized a strike to demand higher wages and better treatment. At the time, labor unions were not legally recognized in the United States, and striking was considered a bold and very risky 
move because you could literally get hurt. And as we'll see with some of those like early ones, like it's an us first them mentality without a doubt. Yeah. yeah so despite the potential consequences, the tailors uh, went up standing firm and temporarily halted their work until demands were met. So there's no specific records that tell us about the outcome of this 1768 New York tailor strike. Uh, we really don't know, but we do know that it's important because it lays the groundwork for future labor movements and strikes in the countries. We progress specifically the real labor strikes as we know them to kind of start after the Civil War. That's when the United States enters the new phase of industrialization. So we're talking a hundred years later and you have railroad magnets. We talked about that in our railroad podcast, consolidate and expand railroad lines around the country and factories need raw materials to power the increasingly mechanized production lines across the nation. And that's when you have the growth of industry and therefore organized labor. One reason why you didn't see a lot of these in the early years, at 18, or you start seeing the 1800s, 1900s, but it's also kind of worrisome for a lot of people is I think that's also the rise of communism, that labor unions are going to give birth to communist ideas in the United States, which is also a fear at the time. So it's something to yeah. just keep in mind as we talk about some of these. Well, there's a fear of anarchy. You know, you get a bunch of disgruntled, unhappy people together, and there's a fear of what, where is this going to go? Which is going to cause violence or, or whatnot. You know, early labor unions, 18th, 19th centuries, before labor unions were a thing, workers in various trades formed these like early associations known as guilds. And eventually these guilds of like plumbers, blacksmiths, stuff like that. Exactly. They kind of eventually evolved into trade unions in the early 19th century. One of the first ones is the National Trades Union in 1834. One of the first attempts to really create a national labor federation. And that one aimed to unite different trade unions themselves. Probably one of the more famous later on or uh, or infamous famous uh, Knights of Labor, right? 1869. Then you have American Federation of Labor, AFL. Yeah, let's look at a couple of stripes. I guess we're not really going to go in like chronological order necessarily. Some will be, I guess some could be. So like, I think one of the ones that is most well known is probably the Pullman strike, right? 1894. Mm-hmm. So it starts in May. Actually, it's a, it's a pretty short one, but it's definitely a, um, it affected over 250,000 workers and it dealt with the American Railroad Union. And it started in May of 1894, but it ends in July of 1894. And it took place when, like we said before, about 250,000 factory workers at the Pullman Place Car Company, which uh, was in Chicago at the time, just walked off the job. They basically had 12-hour work days, reduced wages. And this is all in like, a, there was a depression going on at the time. So they just they just left. And uh, the union leader was Eugene Debs, which if you look at labor laws and, you know, you're, you're going to see this guy pop up a lot during his time. With the strikers, they refused to work on uh, or run any of the trains that included the these Pullman-owned cars. And um, they actually get into a, uh, it turns bloody. About 30 people are killed by the National Guard as the Pullman strike and riders basically destroyed all these cars. Labor Day was a national holiday, was a direct result of the Pullman strike. And it was signed into law by um, Grover Cleveland in July of 1894. So it's right when this ended, mark, Labor Day marks the end of the strike. And they basically got what they wanted. They wanted better hours, better conditions, uh, slightly higher wages, because yes, you couldn't have the railway systems, particularly in that part of the country, just stop. So it's what this is kind of an example of, right? Like the, the laborers, the workers, they realize their value. And it's yeah. just, you know, like I said, a, a bloody one, like 30 people died, but it was a short one. Somebody's yeah. gone much longer. And this one is often kind of lumped in with the homestead strike that happens uh, two years before this. And we do mention this one a little bit in our Carnegie podcast. Essentially, Carnegie's homestead steel plant hit the company chief, Henry uh, Frick, wants to break up union power. So he announces pay cuts for his homestead workers in 1892 and refuses to negotiate with the union. So instead of locking the workers out of the plant, he actually winds up sending Pinkerton detectives, which we also yeah. talk about. In talked about yeah. And these Pinkerton detectives are actually brought in, one, to help protect protect replacement workers that were non-union workers that were brought in to replace the union workers, but also to kind of disperse 
the angry union workers. And what ends up happening is when the word spreads that the Pinkertons are coming, thousands of striking workers and their families rush, basically rush to the Pinkertons and becomes a gunfight. Uh, the strikers are forced to surrender, so the strikers technically lose. But the Pennsylvania state militia is sent in to suppress the strike and the union is crushed. So it kind of shows you that at least early on, you have the government kind of stepping in and, and protecting the oh, industry. Yeah. The go- yeah, because the government wants needs that industry going. Yes. They, they don't want to have. So a lot of times they will actually pressure Unions, that's something that we'll talk about later, like during World War II, Roosevelt kind of makes a deal like, you know, oh, we'll make it up to you. But during the war effort, please don't strike. Yeah. Like, so that's all of those things. And that's why you see some strikes after, like in 46, 47, 48, there's a increase in labor strikes and stuff like that. But um, yeah, especially early on, they favored the big businesses because that was the moneymaker. That's what was making the country money. And, you know, yep. what, what, what did Coolidge say, right? Like the, the uh, business of America is business. So if these businesses are getting shut down, that's going to be a problem because these workers want more money. They can always find someone that'll, that'll do the job for that money. So that's what a lot of these major, you know, corporate heads were figuring out. Like they'll find someone to do the job. Interesting segue in the sense that government eventually does step back. Once unions push for something, the government has to step in either way. And sometimes they step in to favor the businesses. And sometimes they do kind of step in and through passage of different labor laws, help out the employer. Politicians will come out individually and speak and pick a side in it. You're seeing yep. that now with what's going on. Biden and a lot of the other some senators are supporting the actors in what's going on right now against the uh, movie studios. So, you know, it really just depends on the times. I guess the times have changed. There's a lot more sympathy for workers now than there were back in, you know, turn of the century. Yep. And I think one of those, like the sympathy, when you talk about that, uh, Bread and Rose's strike of yes, 1912. I was, was going to talk about that one. Because this one's big, not just for striking, uh, for labor unions, but also the women's rights. Women's rights. Yeah. So Massachusetts passed a law, right? So they're supposed to help reducing the work week from 56 to 54 hours. Wow. And again, it's like two, I know, two hours, right? <laughs> and we are like 40 hour work week. They had 56. And it's like the Massachusetts <laughs> government steps in and it's like, you know, this is a new labor law that's supposed to help laborers so we're going to reduce it to 54 and factory owners however are like well that sucks so they try to negotiate by speeding up production and cutting workers wages yeah, they, like, they, they still want to keep their profit exactly so in lawrence massachusetts textile mill workers responded by shutting down their looms and basically walking out in what became known as the bread and roses strike about twenty-five thousand immigrant workers from ireland italy lithuania other eastern european countries most of them are women actually as you mentioned they were pitted against mill owners who expected a quick end because they knew that there wasn't a lot of support for them because they were mostly immigrants and women like the afl which was mostly like skilled workers and male mm-hmm. They didn't, they didn't get involved. They're like, we're yeah, not getting sexism. involved in this. Mm. Yeah, so they're like, they're like, well, we don't really get to women. You know, we're here to help the men's jobs, you know? So yep. they turned to the um, IWW, uh, the Industrial Workers of the World, and they're a little bit more radical. They're a bit more, I guess you could say, just more communist in there. Without a doubt. Yep. Well, yeah, but those guys wound up sending organizers. They form relief committees, well, they, provide they, food, I, medical they, care, yeah. assistance. Well, they know what they're doing. Like, yeah. I'm not the IWW, like, they're that's what they do. Like, they, they are designed to help unions and strike. That's what they did. They were very much vilified um, during yeah. World War One because oh, it yeah, was like, time. we're supposed to produce. It's, it's a war. You know, like you, there's no striking. You know, who cares about how the person yeah. feels? It's patriotic duty, yeah. Exactly. So the strikers wind up marching regularly by thousands, right, through cities, commercial districts. They defy police, state militia. No one could stop them. Some strikers began sending their children to live with supporters in other cities so that way they could actually strike. And then cops got wind of this, so they tried to stop these kids from boarding trains to Philadelphia. 
because they're like, all right, well, if these women have to take care of their children, they can't strike. So then that got really bad publicity, violent. Yeah, they got violent. Like, you, have, you have like pictures of like cops, like not beating, but like pulling kids off trains, like yep. hitting women and stuff like that. And that's just not going to, you know, that's going to be bad press. But this actually becomes a major victory for union movement itself because Congress has many uh, hearings that expose these awful working conditions. And the owners are finally forced to the bargain table. And in March of 1912, workers voted to accept the women's offer. So major victory for union movement and also the importance of women and immigrants in organized labor. Bed and Roses strike is usually cited, like we said, not only in labor history, but also in women's history to a lot of women's courses that study this. We'll, we'll look at this as like a major victory, a major stepping stone. You know, we'll stick in this general time frame and look at the Great Steel Strike. Right? Okay. This is another famous one. This happens during World War One. Like we said before, well, the labor unions in the U.S. government kind of join together, right? They make the War Labor Board, which they're basically going to not have strikes in exchange for improved labor conditions. They never really totally got along. After the war ended, it was just like truce was totally done. So a lot of these unions came together, like particularly the iron workers unions, like the Algamated Association of Iron, Steel and Tin Workers. They decided to challenge U.S. Steel, which was the biggest steel employer at the time, because they refused to recognize unions. So they called a nationwide strike in 1919. This is 350,000 workers walked off um, the job in six states were not producing any more steel. And this is like, you know, the turn of the century still, 1919. We need steel. We're building skyscrapers, right? You know, the country is, is industrializing at a massive pace here. They need steel. So the police and company hired uh, thugs to beat up the picketers, right? Tens of yeah. thousands of workers of black workers weren't allowed to join unions. And so they were brought in by the strike breakers. And in Jerry, 1920... Well, that's kinda, I do want to kind of jump in there because unions were very much limited at this time. Or, oh, yeah. So you know, white, white skilled, men. yeah, white, might, what they called white skilled men workers i would say exactly yeah. and this winds up what winds up happening here is black workers because they're excluded from unions throughout most of american history specifically this time period they were not allowed to participate in the strike so they're often the ones that are brought in to the replace first. strike yeah. workers yeah. which just adds to yes. the racial divide and the animosity between the two races because it's like well we're going on strike and the company's bringing other people just replacing us instead of stopping production and the people they're bringing in are black so now you're you're like oh there's this is a race thing but the reason why the people that are brought in are african-american is because they were not allowed to strike they were not allowed to be part of these early unions unions yes they're saying we're not part of the union anyway so if we're offered those same wages they're basically getting paid what the union workers said they were refusing to get paid like fine we'll pay you that you just do it and this was actually a um it was a loss like the labor union lost the afl uh, they capitulated defeat and they were they lost in january of 1920 they had to go back to work and they did not get what they wanted. It was actually a setback in the labor movement. So not all of these strikes, this one was often cited by other union workers as kind of like a cautionary tale. Like, no, if we go on strike, we could lose our jobs. Or we could have not get what we want and things could actually be worse. Or what's the point of doing it if there's no guarantee it's actually going to succeed? And that was always a risk. That's what happened yep. with the uh, steel strike of 1919. And there are so many. There's so many strikes, strikes yeah, during um, that time period. Yeah, I mean, Great Street 1919, as you mentioned. But besides that, you're looking at the textile workers strike in 1934, and they lose. The strike only lasts like 20 days, but 400,000 workers, the United Textile Workers, go on strike. Basically, even President Roosevelt's like, yeah, you guys don't really have like a claim to this, so that doesn't work. You have United Mine Workers of America strike in 1946. Mine work, I mean, I can't even. Yeah, they should definitely be striking for one of their their major (laughs) ones right they want to make was just basically safer working conditions like yes let's not use dynamite while we're in the tunnels 
Exactly. Like, I don't think that's a, uh, too much to ask. Well, what gets me is like a lot of these other ones are about like better pay, longer, you know, I mean, uh, less hours, so, so on and so forth. But the United Mine Workers of America, when they went on strike in 1946, 400,000 miners walked off the job. It basically affected 26 states, but these guys wanted safer working conditions and some form of health benefits because some of them got sick. Like, oh, they re- they realized treat happened, me. Yeah. 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 Truman tries to reach a settlement with the union. Efforts don't work. He basically fines them $3.5 million and forces the union to accept a deal, which ends the strike. Because winter's coming, right? And they need coal. Exactly. Right? That's he, what it was. He doesn't, yeah. want people, he doesn't want people freezing out. They can't, they can't get coal. Like, you know, people will die. And you're like, we can't have that. And it's interesting, too, because he settles it down. So Truman comes out like the big guy, like he brought down to strike. But then a year later, he basically uh, quietly passes like healthcare and welfare funds for miners. You know, so it's like, ah, on the down low, here you go. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. I think when you get into the 40s and 50s, uh, we could talk about the Steel Strike of 59, but I, I mean, the biggest, one of the biggest from 1950 on strikes is has to be the U.S. Postal Service strike, right? Well, the postal worker strike, yeah, but there's a big one. They also had a big one in the 70s. So that's what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to talk about. But yeah, well, that's a huge one. So this basically, they grew frustrated, right, over years of low pay. They weren't getting raises. And it's a fiscally demanding job delivering mail. Like it's especially hot days and stuff like that. And they didn't really have any leverage because it was illegal for federal employees to strike. Okay, that's yep. something that we'll talk about a little bit later. I want definitely want to talk about the um, air traffic controller one because that's, yep. that's a big one too. So in March of 1970, the postal workers in New York, you know, they decided to go on strike. They, def- they defied their own union leadership. Okay, because yep. the union leadership is like, we cannot we go on strike. We, it's we're illegal. We're a federal yeah. agency. Yeah. We can't do it because it's considered essential, right? Yeah. So it was the largest ever walkout by federal government employees. Nixon was the president at the time. He dispatches the National Guard to deliver the mail. Now, again, this is the 1970s, a little bit different, but you can imagine now if, like, you know, mail wasn't being delivered. Like, so Amazon, imagine, like, what? Well, Amazon, I guess they would still go. They would do their own. They're privatized. They're, yeah. they're privatized. This is a, you know, but there, there was no Amazon. It just, the United States Postal Service was like the main thing. Postal, yeah, they would call the Postal Department at the time. Um, so after eight days, postal employees did go back to work, and Nixon administration then gave an immediate retroactive pay hike. Okay. So again, this is the government getting involved here. Adjust situation a little bit different too, because it's the federal government that controls the mail at this point anyway. Right. Yeah. So in 1971, the USPS, the United oh, States yeah. Postal Service was formed and postal workers were given the right to negotiate salaries and work conditions. So really what it does is it ends the U.S. Postal Department and then gives birth to the United States Postal Service. So it's like a yeah. new, new thing. And now they're able to negotiate working conditions and um, salaries and things like that. And from right here, I know a couple of people uh, who actually are 
postal workers, they like a pretty good package now. Like, you know, it's yeah. actually like, you know, the different hours that you work, days on, days off, you know, your compensation that you get, your pension. Like, it's a much different than what it was back then. So I guess you could say the strike worked, even though it was illegal, but not striking, not delivering the mail for eight days definitely got attention. What also got attention is the fact that when Nixon called in the military to deliver the mail, they epically failed. Oh, they, yeah. It wasn't, they it thought wasn't it was successful. going to be easy. They thought yeah. it was going to be like, oh, we they, can deliver mail. And then like, they couldn't. They realized how difficult it is too. Because remember, these mail, mailmen or mail women, whatever, you know, mail deliverers, right? I think it's still called mailmen, right? I have a nice woman who always delivers mine for the most part. Yeah. But, so um, yeah, we have, a, we have a lady too, but I thought it was always still mailmen. That's, you're right. That's kind of sounds like that needs to change. Yeah. Like they knew the neighborhood. They had that same route. So they know the area. Like they know the neighborhood. This is in the seventies too. It was still like, a lot of times mail was like hand delivered. Like it wasn't just kind of left in the mailbox, yeah. you know? Like it would be like hand delivered. You would you would have a conversation with your mailman and stuff like that. I remember even in the eighties, my grandfather always used to have the mailman used to like stop by, like hang out with my grandfather's garage, yeah. yeah, for for a few minutes, you know, <laughs> like have like a soda or something like that. You know, it's crazy. They, I don't think they're way. allowed to do that now. It's no, yeah. it's like they have to scan in. At, there's like I remember. I well, I'm sure that's part of like the negotiation. I'm sure, yeah, like they yeah. have to get their route done at some point. Yeah, they can't. Exactly. It's not, it's not quite that, but that's also you what know, it that was. Changes. Yeah, yeah, things change. Yeah, but there, there's like a code, um, barcode on the mailbox by me that like he has to scan that he was here, like so the oh, really? no, knows when he's here um, they only do it a few mailboxes in a neighborhood so like yeah probably so they know like when generally when they're in the route and stuff like that yeah that yeah. makes sense that makes sense big brother watching definitely you know ultimately speaking i mean you can't blame these guys rain shine snow i mean put chains on your tires you go i mean this wow i think i rhymed i'm, I'm impressed there you go. like that's a job where it never stops well unless a federal holiday but yeah <laughs> Other than that. well all right all right tom all right <laughs> federal but, holiday well i'm just saying they say they deliver yeah. every day not quite i mean i have nothing against the postal service that's it i'm calling the postal just service not, nothing against them i mean if you're talking about that one I and mean, we could jump in and go back because obviously we need to do the the 1980 um 80s well let's just go to the it's a sky we're, we're, we're yeah, getting to some 90s and stuff like that so yeah the air controller strike of 1981 which is crazy when you think about it. So these are the air traffic controllers that basically relay information to planes to make sure they don't collide with each other right Contract negotiations fail between the Professional Air Traffic Controls Association, or PACO, and the Federal Aviation Administration. It breaks down the summer of 1981. In 13,000 air traffic controllers, they walk off the job. Reagan says, you cannot do that, okay? You are federal employees, okay? You can't do that. Yeah. He actually invokes a rarely used law prohibiting government workers from striking, and he orders them back to work. He said, you cannot believe this is like going to stop air travel in the United States if this takes place. And... Yeah. They say no, and only 10% listen and come back, all right? So Reagan says, fine. He fires all the rest of them. Those other 90% says, you're all fired. And he bans them ever again from uh, working in the government. He says, I have the power to do this. I'm the president. I control this. So that's it. The PACO strike really represented like kind of like a shift in the federal government response towards um, hostility with the yeah. unions. And it pretty much destroyed the union. The PACO was defeated. The union basically dissolved, and then they start hiring new people to uh, come in. But like a lot of unions, particularly in the Midwest and the Northeast, kind of had a sharp like decline after this piece. People were in the early '80s. People were like wary of unions. Like if the government could just come in and say you're all fired, we're not gonna, even going to do this. And that's what happened here. Like those 90%, they lost their jobs. They're done. Yep. And even said like even if we wanted to stop the actual strike, we, we can't because we're no longer really employed. So like only employees could stop the strike, but you yeah. fired all of us. So viewed as a major setback. 
Oh yeah, because it just made a lot of people like where I'm like I'm not where I'm not getting union. It made a lot of unions that still exist at the time wary of striking, especially if they were like not even government workers, but if they were even connected to that in some way, but worried about if the government was going to step in and like force them back to work. It was very just like let's just see. Right? So it was more of like union. It, was, it kind of got that trend now more anti-union in the early '80s, mid '80s. That shifts again, I would guess, in the late '90s, early 2000s. Yeah. The next one that's around the time, the workers' strike. Remember ladies' garments? Strike? No, I don't. I don't. But um... No, but the ladies' garment <laughs> workers' strike is another one that's a su- successful one for women in the 1980s, very similar to yeah, the New York City, Chinatown, right? Yep. So New York City, Chinatown, ladies' undergarments workers worked extremely long days, uh, terrible conditions, long hours. In 82, after some employers tried to cut their benefits and refused to sign with the International Ladies' uh, Garment Workers Union, about 20,000 workers that were mostly Asian-American women uh, wound up walking out and going on strike. And people thought they weren't going to do it because the Asian women were never really involved in, in unions and they didn't really go yeah. into any meetings. Well, they wanted their union to be recognized. That's what it was. They wanted the union to be recognized, which then gives them negotiating power with the corporation. Yeah. So that's what it is. Yeah. When we talked about this, you should have mentioned this before, getting a union recognized means that, all right, that's who the corporation, the ownership is going to negotiate with. Yeah. Right? And if there is a labor dispute, the union has heads that's going to control it. But a lot of people don't want unions at this time either, because if you have a union, you're paying union dues. So you exactly. might be getting more salary, but you might not be getting as big of that raise as you thought, because some money is taken out and going to the unions. Yep. And we know this because this happens to us too. Yes. But anyway, so they did wind up going on strike in Chinatown. They called for union recognition and they, they get it. The owners do give in. And it's considered an important victory for the union, but also greater recognition for women's rights, which is kind of awesome. And then we have the UPS strike of 1997. For this case off in August of 1997, again, it's not a particularly long strike. So it starts in August 4th, 1997, and it ends in August 19th, 1997. And it's working with the Teamsters. And it's going to involve around 185,000 um, workers. Because they were negotiating for a new contract. Yeah, I don't mean to um, downplay it, but the actual strike itself only lasted. But it was building up for a long time, yeah. yeah. And it was the largest strike in over a decade. And the workers wanted part-time jobs turned to full-time work, right? So yeah. these higher wages and a uh, pension plan. Yeah. And it was a lot of public support at this point for the strikers, which really helps if you have that support from the public that's going to put pressure on the um, corporations really to agree because that's also when you're going to get the government involved, right? Because they're going oh, yeah, to I mean, think about it. The- yeah, but UPS strike disrupted package deliveries nationwide, right? Delays, yeah, yeah. shipment, goods, creating difficulties for business people, but also consumers. So now people are like, all right, like make this work, like figure this out. Figure this out. Yeah, like if there's enough and people also realize like on how much packages are being shipped, like there's, there's, there's money there. You can, there's enough of that pot that you can give the workers a little bit more and you're still going to make plenty of money, you know? What makes me thinking is, like, if Amazon ever, because Amazon has a labor union, like, if they ever... Do they? I think so. Amazon Labor Union, it's led by President, like, Chris Smalls. There's a lot of workers complain about the conditions at Amazon. Yeah, but as of, like, March 2023, the union receives most of its funding from, like, outside groups. I think it unionized. I just don't know if they're ever, like won anything or done anything yet yeah they haven't, they haven't, they haven't they strike or anything yet but if they decide to stop then yeah that's oh my be gosh a, imagine a major they do it like right before uh christmas or something like that imagine that well the issue is amazon refuses to sit for any uh contract negotiations so even though the labor union you know is there it's, it hasn't really gained any ground whatsoever i guess it's recognized but it doesn't mean it's yeah. like actively negotiating well one of the other strikes that we would i would like to get to that uh, we go. were talking about was the um, a little bit it's a little bit different 
This is not like an essential, right? But it's one that definitely people, when they think of strikes, um, well, I guess in our age group would know, um, if you follow sports. Sorry, Pete. Um, nah. But we're talking about the 1994-95 baseball strike, right? Major League Baseball strike, which was actually, a lot of people don't know this, it was the eighth the eighth um, strike in baseball history. So they had, they've had strikes before this, and they were never this long before. This was the longest one, and I've actually resulted in a work stoppage. And it was the largest one at the time. And the strike began on August 12, 1994. Big thing about that is it resulted in the remainder of that season and the postseason not happening. So for the first time in over 90 years, since 1904 at the time, there was no World Series. So there's no World Series champion for 1994. And it actually took up um, some of the time in the 1995 season as well. They only wound up playing 113 games in uh, – 144 games, sorry, in 1995. They only played 113 games in 1994 canceled the entire season. So there was no World Series. And it, Bug Sealy, who was the president of uh, baseball at the time, said that it, it, it really ripped the fabric in the game. Like they lost five, the owners lost $580 million. The players lost uh, a whole bunch of salary, over, combined over a billion dollars between the two, just by not having that, you know, all that stuff. And it really gained a lot of, um, a lot of interest for the game actually stopped because of it. Well, isn't that the same thing that happened with NHL? I mean, if we're talking about cultural strikes, I guess. Uh, NHL has the 1992 strike, but then there was the uh, lockout in 94-95. Yes, they um, did. They missed the Stanley Cup. And then that's 94-95. Then you have another one in 2004 and 2005, which I remember. It is the most extended labor stoppage in NHL history and results yeah. actually in the cancellation the whole of the season. entire season. Yeah, the whole season doesn't happen because of that. Yeah. Well, because they were it, it was they arguing about like the revenue and stuff like that. And you have you have lockouts, two lockouts when the uh, owners refused to open the doors for a reason. You had that happen in, in the um, NBA. 2012, 2013 NHL too. Yeah. Yep. And this baseball strike, like if you're doing sports history, did have some positives, um, but it did it um, or in other aspects, like it actually affects basketball because during this strike was when. Michael Jordan was in the minor leagues with the Chicago White Sox. So he's like, well, I'm on strike. So since he needs something to do, he decided to start playing basketball a little bit again and realized, oh, I can still – I like basketball I a lot. Play. Yeah. Let me go back. And then he goes back to the Bulls and then they win three more titles. So like that happens. But also it's, this gives – this strike does help the um, players a lot because it raises the salary. Like yeah. in the average salary in 1994 was $1.2 million. Yeah, that was the average salary. Now you look at baseball wow. salaries now. Imagine like now, oh my god, it's it, it, it's it's, it's, it's it's well, not everybody. I don't I don't know what the average salary is, but I know like I think the league minimum is over a million dollars. That just gives you like, a, like the idea. But it did hurt the game. It took years really before people started coming back. And attendance was down many years after. Because like you know, these are all just rich people too. Even a hundred, you know, one point two million dollars was the average salary. That's that's still pretty good. Like especially in the early nineties. Like I'll take one point two million dollars a year. And with no complaints, yeah. you know, to play baseball. Yes. Fine. You know, but it was, it was that sort of things. But I do remember that a lot because I was like, you know, 11, 12 years old at the time. And I was like, really, I knew baseball. I guess I was really getting into it at that point, you know, and then now there's no yeah. world series. Like, Hey, what's happening? You know, it wasn't affecting my life. Like, you know, like, <laughs> not like yeah, yeah, somebody else. Not some of the other things like if steel stopped being produced and stuff like that, like I was able to survive, but those things were happening. Yeah. So let's finish up with the one that more or less inspired this podcast when we sat down and we're like, Hey, let's do this. And that one deals with Hollywood and the current writers guild of America strike is not by any means the first one, the screen actors guild strike 
of 2000. You had the Writers Guild of America strike in 2007, 2008. And even before that, you had one in 88 and one in 1960 as well. But overall, Hollywood is not new to labor strikes. And it's some of the most notable ones, I guess, to get to today's strike, 23, Studio Basic Agreement Strike started in 1945. And that's when Conference of Studio Unions, independent labor organization representing studio workers, went on strike. And grievances, working hours, low wages, inadequate benefits. The strike disrupted film production and got a lot of media attention. So it, there was a compromise that was reached. And what wound up happening is in 45, you have this idea like people actually do care about Hollywood or at least about their yeah. entertainment. Well, entertainment. That's that's part of American yeah. fabric. Same thing like we were talking about with like the, the baseball, baseball and whatnot. And yeah. the hockey. Yeah, like it's people, they need those outlets. Yeah. And then in 1960... The Writers Guild of America strike. The Writers Guild went on strike demanding better pay and creative control over their work. So interesting because that kind of leads up to where we are today. Strike lasts 21 weeks, uh, notable impact on television production. So it causes delays of new episodes and affects the industry's revenue. In 1960, people loved their TV. Yeah. I mean, TV's really going to have been around for what? only for like 10 years. So people get upset and they're like, dude, figure this out. So the strike does result in concessions for writers, meaning that they are given more money for for writing, mm -hmm. but creativity and creative control over the work is curtailed a little bit. So it's like, we'll give yeah, you they, more money, but you write what we want you to write kind of thing. Yeah, yeah they don't uh, have total control over it. And I think there's another one in, yeah, one in the 80s. Yeah, also, um, yeah. where because it's the rise of cable. So they're exactly. saying, the actors are saying, the writers are saying, wait a minute, you know, like now these shows that used to be on, ABC, NBC, now they're on these like cable networks. So they're shown so much they're, more. They're, they're being shown, they're being shown in situation. You're making money off of that. We need to be make money too. So they go on strike and they do win. And that's how they get like residuals from being on like, what, what do they call that? Syndication when it's on like other yep. channels and stuff like that. Shown. That's why I think they say if you're an actor and you're on a TV show, you want it to get to 100 episodes. Yeah. Because 100 episodes, then it's easier to put it on syndication and you'll get money, you know, from running on syndication. So if there's actors still today that, if it's shown on TV somewhere, right, whatever that contract is, they get money from I don't know how much it is. I mean, Seinfeld makes oh, yeah. so much money. Yeah, but they make it not only because it's on TV, but also I think it was on Netflix or the streaming services. And that's really what's going on now. Today, yeah. Is, is the streaming services because there's no real negotiation for that. So these individuals saying, like, my, I'm on a show, right? Now it's on, I, w I maybe started in the early 90s, but now it's on Netflix, let's say, right? Yeah. How, why am I not getting money from this, right? Exactly. And that's how people money. usually watch, mostly watch the shows now anyway. like It's by streaming, yeah. Yep. So whether it's, I mean, there's so many different streaming services. So they're saying, you know, where we, we need to get a cut of that. And the writers are saying, listen, if you're selling, you know, my property, the stuff that I wrote, and you know, you're making additional profit from that, I should be getting some of that piece of the pie too. So it's that. That's what the, the writers went on strike in earlier in 2023. And then the actors recently joined them, I think in July. Um, early July, July 13th, because it, it was not only residuals from streaming, but also um, their fears over the use of AI, because there was yep. some an idea that they could use artificial intelligence to, and to use their likeness without compensation. And the movie studio said, no, we were only going to use that for the rest of that movie, but we wouldn't use it in any other movies. But they're like, no, nah, that's actors not Actors really. are getting scanned now. So like, they, it's almost like the people are like, well, we own your likeness. Or your voice. That's what saying. Yeah, yeah. That because now, I mean, look, you can make. Um, what I hear the other day, I heard it on someone was playing it. They took Johnny Cash and using words that he said in sounds using AI, they were able to make him sing um, on the Barbie Girl. Crazy. And it sounded just like that. So they're saying, you know, you can take someone's voice and change it with AI, and the technology is only going to get more intense. I mean, look what they did. They made uh, Harrison Ford look younger than Indiana Jones, right? 
Yep. They made Mark Hamill become Luke Skywalker again in that last in that scene of the Mandalorian. So it's only going to get like better. So they're saying, you know, they can just use an actor's likeness. Then I can have to pay the actor and the actor's like, no, that's not how it's going to work. Nuts. So that's where, they, that's where they're getting. And this is one that's, you know, it's affecting. There are no um, big budget studios, movies getting produced right now, right? There's no new TV shows getting written. So, you know, when you people are used to like, you know, the in the fall when all the TV shows come back, right? That's yeah, that's going to be. That's all going to be delayed. I'm, I'm going to have to watch reruns of SVU. There's not going to be new ones. That's going to be upsetting. Deadpool 3 got production stopped. I was looking forward to that. You know, all these movies and stuff like that are being um, shut down because everyone's on strike. I don't know where the public really stands. I think from what I'm seeing, most people are probably on the uh, seem to be on the side of the um, actors. Yeah, and actually, I just saw this, that uh, 2021 public approval for unions hit 68%, which yeah, is the highest really- level in 57 years. People are like, pro-union the well, most have been. A, a lot of people are probably part of unions also so yeah. if you're part of a union you're probably gonna be more pro-union and uh, people say well look at these movie stars they make so much money and i get, that's true like brad pitts and stuff like that they make millions but if you look like the average salary of like just like working actors who work from like show to show and stuff like that they don't make tons of money employees more than just the actors too and employees like the like we said the writers but also the the makeup people the people who work with the production companies the people who like man the cameras all they're all out of work also too because yeah. of this, you know. So but it, you know, it affects most effect. thousands of people, hundreds yeah. of thousands of people. What gets me though is that two thirds of Americans support unions, right? And they're like, "Yeah, give these guys what they want." But the being part of a union is very difficult in a sense of getting what you want. And there was a downward trend in union membership itself. Right. Apparently, since 1983, union membership rate has declined from 20% to 10%. As long as unions exist, which they still do, we are probably going to have uh, so labor it's going to be strikes. Yeah. Like, who would think actors would strike, right? Like, uh, right. Baseball players would strike, but it happens. So you're going to have an all works of life. You know, um, Teachers can't strike, well, at least not when in our state, right? But, um, yeah. Which, no, not saying we, we need to strike, but I'm just saying that it actually is illegal. For teachers to strike in New Jersey, I believe. So I think that pretty much covers uh, more or less, you know, some of the major. Uh, yeah, it gives you a little bit of a back, a little bit of background information, um, you know, and you know the the one that we've talked about a couple times already. That actor strike is still going on now. Like I'm sure when this podcast comes out, it's still going to be going on. It's, it, there's yep. not going to be any easy solution for this. No, but at no, some no. point when the studios are going to be losing a lot more money than they say they've been losing lately, there's going to have to be some sort of negotiation one way or the other. The thing is that the Hollywood studios are like, you know what? We're going to let these guys go broke before we resume talks in the fall. Yeah, but still, yeah these, the executives are going to have tons of money. Like they're, they're not running out of money, but that's what they're saying, that the executives are getting these bonuses while these actors are getting nothing, like the, the more lower, lower um, known actors and stuff like that. But yeah, so we'll see what happens. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see because there's no content, new content coming out. What are people going to do? Yeah. Anyway, well, thank you so much, guys, for tuning in to our podcast once more. Uh, we do appreciate it. If you guys need to find us, you can find us at www.historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com. If you have any questions, suggestions, please feel free to visit our website. And make sure you guys click that like and subscribe button wherever you see us. We do appreciate that. So thank you so much. And we'll see you guys next week. Stay safe, everybody. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. 
It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.